0: Chapter the Third, Sections Two and Three, and Chapter the Fourth, Section One, of The Secret Places of the Heart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Secret Places of the Heart by H. G. Wells. Chapter the Third, Section Two. The affair of the car effectively unsealed Sir Richmond's mind. Hitherto Dr. Martineau had perceived the possibility and danger of a defensive silence or of a still more defensive irony. But now that Sir Richmond had once given himself away, he seemed prepared to give himself away to an unlimited extent. He embarked upon an apologetic discussion of the choleric temperament, He began as they stood waiting for the relief car from the Maidenhead garage. You were talking of the ghosts of apes and monkeys that suddenly come out from the darkness of the subconscious. You mean when we first met at Harley Street? That last apparition of mine seems to have been a gorilla at least. The doctor became precise. Gorilla-esque. We are not descended from gorillas.' queer thing a fit of rage is it is one of nature's cruder expedients crude but i doubt if it is fundamental there doesn't seem to be rage in the vegetable world and even among the animals no it is not universal he ran his mind over classes and orders wasps and bees certainly seem to rage but if one comes to think, most of the invertebrata show very few signs of it. "'I'm not so sure,' said Sir Richmond. "'I've never seen a snail in a towering passion, or an oyster slamming its shell behind it. But these are sluggish things. Oysters sulk, which is, after all, a smouldering sort of rage. And take any more active invertebrate. Take a spider.' not a smashing and swearing sort of rage perhaps but a disciplined cold-blooded malignity crabs fight a conjure eel in a boat will rage dangerously a vertebrate yes but even among the vertebrata who has ever seen a furious rabbit don't the bucks fight questioned sir richmond dr martineau admitted the point i've always had these fits of passion as far back as i can remember i was a kicking screaming child i threw things i once threw a fork at my elder brother and it stuck in his forehead doing no serious damage happily there were whole days of wrath days as i remember them perhaps they were only hours i've never thought before what a peculiar thing all this raging is in the world why do we rage they used to say it was the devil If it isn't the devil, then what the devil is it? After all, he went on, as the doctor was about to answer his question, as you pointed out, it isn't the lowlier things that rage, it's the higher things and us. The devil nowadays, the doctor reflected after a pause so far as man is concerned, is understood to be the ancestral ape, and more particularly the old male ape, But Sir Richmond was away on another line of thought. Life itself flaring out, brooking no contradiction. He came round suddenly to the doctor's qualification. Why male? Don't little girls smash things just as much? They don't, said Dr. Martineau, not nearly as much. Sir Richmond went off at a tangent again. I suppose you have watched any number of babies— not nearly as many as a general practitioner would do. There's a lot of rage about most of them at first, male or female. Queer Little Eddies of Fury. Recently, it happens, I've been seeing one, a spit of red wrath clenching its fists and squalling threats at a damned disobedient universe. The doctor was struck by an idea and glanced quickly and questioningly at his companion's profile. "'Blind driving force,' said Sir Richmond, musing. "'Isn't that, after all, what we really are?' he asked the doctor. "'Essentially rage—a rage in dead matter, making it alive.' Schopenhauer footnoted the doctor. "'Bohème.' "'Plain fact,' said Sir Richmond— no rage no go but rage without discipline discipline afterwards the rage first but rage against what and for what against the universe and for that's more difficult what is the little beast squalling itself crimson for ultimately what is it clutching after in the long run what will it get "'Yours the car in distress. What sent this?' asked an unheeded voice. "'Of course, if you were to say desire,' said Dr. Martineau, "'then you would be in line with the psychoanalysts. "'They talk of libido, meaning a sort of fundamental desire. "'Jung speaks of it at times almost as if it were the universal driving force.' "'No,' said Sir Richmond, in love with his new idea, "'not desire.' Desire would have a definite direction, and that is just what this driving force hasn't—its rage. "'Yours the car in distress, what sent this?' the voice repeated. It was the voice of a mechanic in an overland car. He was holding up the blue request for assistance that Sir Richmond had recently filled in. The two philosophers returned to practical matters. End of section 2 section three for half an hour after the departure of the little charmeuse car with sir richmond and dr martineau the brass mercury lay unheeded in the dusty roadside grass then it caught the eye of a passing child he was a bright little boy of five from the moment when he caught the gleam of brass he knew that he had made the find of his life but his nurse was a timorous foolish thing you did ought to have left it there, Master Harry," she said. "Findings ain't keepings nowadays. Not by no manner of means, Master Harry. You'd look silly if a policeman come along, arstin people, if they seen a golden image. Arst yer, ow you come by it, and look pretty straight at you. All of which grumblings, Master Harry treated with an experienced disregard. He knew definitely that he would never relinquish this bright and lovely possession again. It was the first beautiful thing he had ever possessed. He was the darling of fond and indulgent parents, and his nursery was crowded with hideous rag and sawdust dolls, gollywogs, comic penguins, comic lions, comic elephants, and comic policemen, and every variety of such like humorous idiocy and visual beastliness this figure, solid, delicate, and gracious, was a thing of a different order. There was to be much conflict and distress, tears and wrath, before the affinity of that clean-limbed, shining figure and his small soul was recognized. But he carried his point at last. The mercury became his inseparable darling, his symbol, his private god, the one dignified and serious thing in a little life much congested by the quaint, the burlesque, and all the smiling, dull condescensions of adult love. End of chapter three. Chapter the Fourth, section one of The Secret Places of the Heart by H. G. Wells. Chapter the Fourth, at Maidenhead. Section one the little charmeuse was towed to hospital and the two psychiatrists took up their quarters at the radiant hotel with its pleasant lawns and graceful landing stage at the bend towards the bridge sir richmond after some trying work at the telephone got into touch with his own proper car a man would bring the car down in two days time at least and afterwards the detested coupe could go back to london The day was still young, and after lunch and coffee upon a sunny lawn, a boat seemed indicated. Sir Richmond astonished the doctor by going to his room, reappearing dressed in tennis flannels and looking very well in them. It occurred to the doctor, as a thing hitherto unnoted, that Sir Richmond was not indifferent to his personal appearance. The doctor had no flannels, but he had brought a brown holland umbrella lined with green that he had acquired long ago in Algiers, and this served to give him something of the riverside quality. The day was full of sunshine, and the river had a maytime animation. Pink geraniums, vivid green lawns, gay awnings, bright glass, white paint and shining metal set the tone of maidenhead life. At lunch there had been five or six small tables with quietly affectionate couples who talked in undertones, a table full of bright-coloured Jews who talked in overtones, and a family party from the Midlands, badly smitten with shyness, who did not talk at all. A resort of honeymoon couples, said the doctor, and then rather knowingly, temporary honeymoons I fancy in one or two of the cases decidedly temporary said sir richmond considering the company in most of the cases anyhow the two in the corner might be married you never know nowadays he became reflective after lunch and coffee he rode the doctor up the river towards cliveden the last time i was here he said returning to the subject i was here on a temporary honeymoon the doctor tried to look as though he had not thought that could be possible i know my maidenhead fairly well said sir richmond aquatic activities such as rowing punting messing about with a boat-hook tying up buzzing about in motor launches fouling other people's boats are merely the stage business of the drama the ruling interests of this place are love largely illicit "'and persistent drinking. Don't you think the bridge charming from here?' "'I shouldn't have thought drinking,' said Dr. Martineau, after he had done justice to the bridge over his shoulder. "'Yes, the place has a floating population of quiet, industrious soakers. The incurable river-man and the river-girl end at that.' Dr. Martineau encouraged Sir Richmond by an appreciative silence if we are to explore the secret places of the heart sir richmond went on we shall have to give some attention to this maidenhead side of life it is very material to my case i have as i have said been here this place has beauty and charm these piled-up woods behind which my lords astor and desborough keep their state this shining mirror of the water brown and green and sky-blue this fringe of reeds and scented rushes and forget-me-not and lilies and these perpetually posing white swans they make a picture a little artificial it is true one feels the presence of a conservancy board planting the rushes and industriously nicking the swans but none the less delightful and this setting has appealed to a number of people as an invitation, as in a way a promise. They come here responsive to that promise of beauty and happiness. They conceive of themselves here, rowing swiftly and gracefully, punting beautifully, brandishing boat-hooks with ease and charm. They look to meet, under pleasant or romantic circumstances, other possessors and worshippers of grace and beauty here. There will be glowing evenings, warm moonlight, distant voices singing. There is your desire, doctor, the desire you say is the driving force of life. But reality mocks it. Boats bump and lead to coarse, ungracious quarrels. Rowing can be curiously fatiguing. Punting involves dreadful indignities. The romance here tarnishes very quickly. Romantic encounters fail to occur. In our impatience we resort to accosting. Chilly mists arise from the water, and the magic of distant singing is provided, even excessively, by boatloads of cads with collecting dishes. When the weather keeps warm, there presently arises an extraordinary multitude of gnats, and when it does not there is a need for stimulants that is why the dreamers who come here first for a light delicious brush with love come down at last to the thameside barmaid with her array of spirits and cordials as the quintessence of all desire i say said the doctor you tear the place to pieces the desires of the place said sir richmond i am using the place as a symbol He held his skulls awash, rippling in the water. The real force of life, the rage of life, isn't here, he said. It's down underneath, sulking and smoldering. Every now and then it strains and cracks the surface. This stretch of the Thames, this pleasure stretch, has in fact a curiously quarrelsome atmosphere. People scold and insult one another for the most trivial things— for passing too close for taking the wrong side for tying up or floating loose most of these notice boards on the bank show a thoroughly nasty spirit people on the banks jeer at anyone in the boats you hear people quarrelling in boats in the hotels as they walk along the towing path there is remarkably little happy laughter here the rage you see is hostile to this place the rage breaks through the people who drift from one pub to another, drinking, the people who fuddle in the riverside hotels, are the last fugitives of pleasure, trying to forget the rage. "'Isn't it that there is some greater desire at the back of the human mind,' the doctor suggested, "'which refuses to be content with pleasure as an end?' "'What greater desire?' asked Sir Richmond disconcertingly. "'Oh!' the doctor cast about. "'There is no such greater desire,' said Sir Richmond. "'You cannot name it. It is just blind drive. I admit it's discontent with pleasure as an end, but has it any end of its own? At the most you can say that the rage in life is seeking its desire and hasn't found it.' "'Let us help in the search,' said the doctor, with an afternoon smile under his green umbrella. "'Go on.' End of chapter 4, section 1